Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, what's next for the state's largest homeless shelter now that the city of Phoenix will keep it open for another year? And we meet one local artist who draws our city's lesser-known landmarks. But first, state lawmakers will be debating bills on some familiar topics this week, from elections to so-called culture war issues. This is House and Senate committees start taking up measures from the opposite chamber after last week's crossover week. With me now is he is every Monday during the legislative session to talk about what to expect this week at 700 West Washington is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Good morning, Howie. Good morning. Or as uh, Yogi Berra would say, it's deja vu all over again. All at the over Capitol. again, of course. So speaking of deja vu, let's talk about elections and uh, voting centers. There's a measure that would basically get rid of them, right? Yes. The complaint is that the voting centers caused some of the problems we had in Maricopa County last election because there were a lot of people being funneled into a few places. The advantage of voting centers is you can go to any one. They print out the ballots there. They know where you're from. You get your school board races, your legislative races. The complaint is that if you had precinct voting, that while you could only go to your own precinct, you would know immediately how long the lines are. And you would be able to count the ballots easier. And you could. some people want to actually count them there at the precinct, which goes to some larger questions about one-day voting and everything else. This has been a, a big issue for the conservatives who want to say we they want to make it as, I don't want to say as difficult as possible, because it depends on how you're, you're talking about it. They do point out that state law says you're entitled to three hours off during the day to go vote. So you don't necessarily need a voting center. But it's a matter of faith for a lot of these folks that voting centers are a problem and we're going to get rid of them. Right. Howie, there are also some, uh, quote unquote, culture war issues coming up for debate in the Senate, one dealing with uh, with the pronouns that uh, that people would like to have used, another having to deal with uh, sort of accommodations for changing in showers. Um, are, how similar or dissimilar are these to the kinds of bills that we've seen in, in the recent past? Well, the one about the showers is a little different because originally this started years ago as John Kavanaugh's bathroom bill about what bathroom you can go to, depending, literally speaking, on your plumbing, if you will. They backed it off to talk about showers because, you know, in a bathroom, you have stalls. There are things you can do. A shower is basically an open area. And they're saying, look, there is no reason that somebody who is born male, we can get into questions about biological male, gender and all that stuff, should be in a shower room with females. Some folks have said, well, you can put in shower curtains. I'm not sure how much of a uh, of an answer that is. And what they've done is say, look, if you're unable or unwilling to use the shower room that matches your biological birth, then you have to do a reasonable accommodation, which could include a, a single room that has only one shower in it, maybe the staff room. And so they're trying to make some accommodation there. The issue of pronouns is one of those things about what kids want to be called and should parents have to give their permission. In other words, if Johnny comes to school and says, I want to be called her or she, you know, should you have to notify the parents? Should you have to force school teachers to go ahead and acknowledge what a student feels? And this gets very tricky because as you get into older children, 
who clearly know what they are or and and should you have to go ahead and say well i'm sorry johnny we're going to call you he and johnny because that's what's on your birth certificate Howie, is there any reason to believe that assuming that any of these these three bills that we've talked about so far get to the governor's desk that she would sign them? I'd say that the odds are very, very small. She doesn't like all these culture war issues. She's vetoed several of them in past years. Why they're coming up again? You know, that comes down to politics. You know, it's an election year. Well, we want to show that Governor Katie Hobbs is out of touch with what parents want. I think she'd have a real problem. You know, she might be willing to do something perhaps on a shower bill if she considered the reasonable accommodations to be sufficient. But again, I'd say, you know, she got to 143 vetoes last year. If they keep sending her this stuff, I'd say she could break her own record. Yeah. Howie, another bill up for a debate in the Senate this week uh, would basically set a maximum fine for uh, photo enforcement uh, for speed camera violations. And in some cases, this would be a pretty dramatic drop in revenue for, for cities that use these. Well, the point of this is a lot of folks don't like the idea of photo enforcement, both the idea of radar, which is used extensively, for example, in Paradise Valley, and then red light cameras, which are used by a number of valley cities because of the fact that we have people here who can't seem to understand that red means stop. So unable to get a bill out to kill it, unable to even put that on the ballot, they're trying to go ahead and minimize the impact. So it would do two things. Number one, it would say, the total revenue is $100 because a speeding ticket could be $200, $300 or more. More to the point of getting people to pay them and not fight them, it says if you pay it within 90 days, you won't get any points on your license. And more, more again, more particularly, we won't tell your insurance company mm. about it. So I think the belief is that somehow this could get through and get the votes it needs. Now, what the governor will do with things like that, this hasn't been one of her issues in the past, but it, it's hard to say. Has this had bipartisan support so far going through the process? It's had some more than than before. I think the issue of revenue to cities is not so much the issue. The issue is public safety. And if people think, well, so what if I get a a speeding ticket going up Lincoln Drive in Paradise Valley? No big deal. I can afford the hundred bucks. Uh, But I think that a lot of the Democrats say, do you really want to strip rights away from the city? Do you really want to undermine their ability to enforce their speeding laws. Yeah, that is interesting. All right. Lots more to come on all of these. For now, that'll do it. Howie Fisher with Capital Media Services. Thank you as always, Howie. You're welcome. Last week, Central Arizona Shelter Services, the state's largest homeless shelter, was at a precipice. Facing a $1.5 million shortfall, the shelter, which was integral in clearing out the zone last year, was going to have to shut down 24-hour services. Business owners near the downtown campus started voicing concerns that a reduction in services would send people back onto the streets and bring back the zone not long after it was successfully cleared. Then the Phoenix City Council stepped in at the last minute, unanimously approving about a million dollars in stopgap funding to keep CAS open. But it's not a permanent solution for the shelter as the number of people experiencing homelessness in our community continues to climb. Lisa Glow is the CEO of CAS and joins us now to talk more about it. Good morning, Lisa. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. Okay, so what does this city funding mean for CAS at this point? Will you be able to stay open 24 hours a day? It's a stopgap and it helps us reduce the shortfall of 1.5. We still have some other funding to raise by the end of March. 
But as you said, we have a crisis in homelessness, and the demand has never been greater. We are a 24-7 operator, both at our adult shelter and our family shelter, and we are not the only ones who have scaled up in this crisis. So the crisis with homelessness is going to continue. Um, We have a lot of first-time homeless, and inflation is rising, and so we're going to see more and more people. I wanted to set that context Mm -hmm. and also explain that what happened in the pandemic is we were all very fortunate, CAS and other providers, to receive a lot of COVID money. Mm-hmm. So we scaled up in response to that. And this time for the first year ever in at least a decade or more, we did not get state general operating dollars for our two shelters. Mm-hmm. That's how we got to this point. And then Phoenix stepped in, as you said, helped us to close that gap but we're going to have an ongoing gap going forward as well. Yeah. So this has to do with the sort of the the so-called ARPA cliff, right? Like the American Rescue Plan Act money drying up in lots of places, but also with state agencies not giving you the money they had given you in the past. How far does this get you? This is about a year of, of funding for you at this point? This gets us through June, this fiscal year. June. So oh. we're going to have an ongoing need for more consistent support from government And I I want to talk a little bit about the state because the state has been a partner for a long time, but the state has never significantly funded homelessness until last year. There was a one-time fund, a homeless shelter fund. Mm -hmm. And we are going to be lobbying to be able to continue to have those kind of dollars going forward. Emergency shelter is the stopgap, the life-saving measure for so many, um, not just here at Cass and in Phoenix, but throughout the state. So we are going to continue to advocate for that increased funding because until we have enough housing, we have to shelter people, keep them off the streets. We had over a 1,000 street deaths in Maricopa County last year, Mm -hmm. and that's a reality. So – I wanted to make sure people understood the context and how important it is to advocate that we have consistent, sustainable government funding. Let me ask you one more question about the context there. As I mentioned, the the zone was cleared out not too long ago. This was right next to your shelter, you know, hundreds up to a thousand people at I think a certain point living on the street there. Those people have been moved out and into shelter in, in various forms. What has that meant for CAS and for shelter capacity? I mean, can you handle it? So CAS went from 470 to 600 beds as well as 24-7 services, meaning people stay in all day. We've always been a 24-7 service provider. We've scaled up with new programming, but we didn't get the commensurate scale up in funding from government. Mm -hmm. So it is a sustainability question for us to be able to stay at that level, and that's what our board Um, has been talking about how do we stay at such a high level of operations. We are the state's largest, longest-serving emergency shelter. The need is not going away. So um, that's the question. How Hmm. do we sustain at that level? We're really strong in our private fundraising efforts. We get support from nearly every municipality, and now Fountain Hills is even stepping up to provide funding, and they don't have a huge homeless uh, problem there. But It's a question that we have to ask. It's a bigger question for the system as well. And again, I go back to the need for consistent government support because we've scaled up now. We have the COVID cliff. We have to make sure we keep people off the streets. Let me ask you about what's behind this rise in homelessness. We've heard so much about this, but what are you seeing on the ground? What are you hearing from people who are becoming homeless? You mentioned people are becoming homeless for the first time. Right. As rents continue to escalate, especially here in Maricopa County, 
We have, I believe, the unfortunate distinction to be number one in evictions in the country or number two. It it varies. People are becoming homeless who cannot afford a place to live. And we have a lack of housing, 270,000 affordable units across the state. And shelter is the first place where people come. So we need to do all of it. some of the populations becoming homeless in record numbers are seniors. Mm-hmm. They're about 30 percent of our population. We have a rise in youth homelessness. We have a rise in veteran homelessness and in chronic homelessness. So we know who we're serving. Um, I want to go back for a second and talk about the zone, though. So it was a real positive thing when the zone was cleared out. It, there was a lot of pressure on Phoenix We are keeping at that high level of beds. That was a response in order to get more people off the streets. Some nights were at 650. Um, And they also opened up a lot of different hotel temporary programs. When those programs have to close, that's going to put more homeless individuals also on the streets. So we're not out of the woods by the clearing of the zone. Um, The city also did a, a very unique thing, and they opened up a safe outdoor shelter camping Mm -hmm. space, which is a positive, and they can take up to 300 people there. I think they have around 50 there right now. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things in place, but what's that long-term sustainability? What's our commitment there? And that's the concern. Right. So what are the possibilities you're looking at? Like when business owners last week started to to step up and say, hey, listen, we don't want a reduction in services here because we don't want the zone to come back. Is that a real possibility if you don't get this funding going forward? Absolutely. I mean, we do not want to have to scale down beds or cut any services. It's just too essential. So everything is being discussed at the board level. Um, It's a reality because we have to be able to sustain our operations. Last minute for you, Lisa. Tell us what your options are on the table when you're looking at ongoing funding. Is this something you're looking at the state level? Is it federal? Is it a piecemeal approach? It's really all of it. Mm-hmm. I think the state is an important partner. And last year, was there was a one-time homeless shelter fund that we had lobbied for that um, needs to continue. So we'll be lobbying for that to continue. Um, there is going to be more federal money coming down the pipeline. There are opioid dollars we can pursue. We've always had a piecemeal approach, however, to emergency shelter. I've been doing this for six and a half years. We've got to have more consistent, sustainable support. So whatever avenue it comes from, um, we recently got licensed to become a Medicaid agency, so we're diversifying funding. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not just a caste problem. This is a systems problem Mm -hmm. for our people that are becoming homeless for the first time. So there's many, many other layers. But for us to be able to stay at that scaled-up level, we need ongoing government support. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Lisa Glow, CEO of CAST, joining us. Lisa, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. The political world is bracing for President Joe Biden to take a turn to the right on immigration soon. Biden is reportedly poised to sign an executive order that would prevent people crossing the border illegally from seeking asylum. The move comes on the heels of a failed bipartisan deal in Congress that would have funded local border aid networks and allowed the president to shut down the border if the number of migrants reached a threshold. 
But our next guest says it will be no magic wand for controlling the flood of migrants that continue to crowd ports of entry. Elvia Diaz is editorial page editor of the Arizona Republic, and she joins us on Mondays as she joins us now. Good morning, Elvia. Good morning. All right. So you wrote a column about this expected move from Biden in which you argue basically that kind of whatever the president does on his own, it will not be enough to address the the real problem, the underlying problems here. So begin there and tell us why not. Well, because he uh, he already has a problem with so many people from all over the world asking asylum. And, you know, they are releasing a lot of them into the United States, which from the immigrant rights activists, that's great. That's exactly what uh, they want the administration to do, to give them an opportunity to be here in this country. From the practical point of view, uh, they're just too many of them. And so he's dealing with the same resources as it is now. So I really don't get how he is going to change the trajectory with existing resources, because, you know, clearly you can say that if it was that easy, he would have done it already. Hmm. Now, with executive order, of course, he's he's uh, he's asking for some specific authority that he doesn't have right now. And he I mean, he may actually do that and that would help him. But again, the resources are not there. He was asking for a lot more. So so you're talking about about resources, You like it would take an enormous amount of investment and also political maneuvering you talk about on both sides of the border to make a real difference here. We don't know what exactly the executive order is going to say, but if we believe some of the sources that were cited in um, in media columns, he will go kind of Donald Trump. Remember, the former president used uh, a health emergency called Title 42. Uh, president Biden doesn't have that kind of health emergency right now, so he will seek uh, a different kind of authority to expel asylum seekers and people showing up at the border. What is still unclear is exactly how that will happen because what we were reading is that everyone who's caught crossing the border illegally will be immediately turned away. When someone turns themselves into immigration authorities, Mm -hmm. by definition, they're not illegally crossing. They are doing the right thing, what is allowed in the law, right? I mean, if you surrender yourself to authorities, you're asking for asylum, you're not crossing illegally. So presumably we're talking about everyone else that is not. But then you have another problem as to where the president is going to send them back to. So they're coming from Mexico. We know for a fact that most of the asylum seekers are not Mexicans. They are from all over the world. So is he going to send them back to Mexico or is he going to send them back to the original countries? Again, that's uh, that's another expense and another political maneuvering that he has to do with a Mexican government to see if the Mexican government is going to take all those folks on Mexican soil. Hmm. So, I mean, essentially, are you saying there's only so much he can do on his own or are you saying that this is bad policy, that he shouldn't do anything like this? Well, one, he cannot do it on his own without the Mexican government, without incurring a tremendous expense. You know, they they will have to be flown. And if he's going to send them back to Mexico, then, of course, he needs the the help of the Mexican government. Mm. So uh, I I do think that he's probably going to do something. I mean, it's an election year, and that's the bottom line. He needs to show that he is doing something, and doing an executive order will be the way to do it, and then keep blaming the Republicans for not signing the 
Porter deal where he was asking a lot more resources. Right. But the power of the purse, right? The funding for all of this, the yes. sustained resources that Border Patrol, et cetera, would need is that's all with Congress. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he was asking for you know, at least 1,300 more Border Patrol agents to join the 20-something thousand that are already uh, funded in the current budget. He was asking for additional detention centers, additional asylum officers, and 1,500 or so lawyers and support staff. He's not getting any of that with executive order. So he will have to do that within the budget. Um, and again, he, he may have the money. He may find the money here and there, mm-hmm. presumably. But then where is he going to find the people to hire and to put in place this expedited removal. So Mm -hmm. a lot going on here that the president may or may not be able to do. But, you know, a lot of people are eager to to see what his next move is going to be. Right, right. And it feels like like it has to happen, like something has to change. This is sort of this political moment in which we're in an election year. The president made some big promises when it came to immigration during his last election. Many people on the left feel those were broken. And at the same time, Republicans on the other side see this as a big opportunity to take votes from Democrats. We're sort of setting up this ultimate battle over border policy here. I mean, I wonder, do you feel like he has to do this because of the political moment? And will that shape what it is that he decides to do? Absolutely. And it's not a feel that he has broken his promises. It is a fact, Lauren. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did promise time and again that he was going to pursue immigration reform, that people were going to be treated humanely, that uh, the United States were going to be the, the, the country that has always been allowing people, again, to ask asylum, not necessarily to get it, but, but to ask for it. But he is in a no-win situation. So he does have a real problem. Too many people are showing up at the border, not too many authorities able to handle them. And so Republicans are being pounding him on border chaos, border invasion, what, what they call it. On the other hand, and he's breaking his promise. And so he's angering a lot of immigrant rights activists, a lot of Latinos. And, you know, he clearly appears that he is trying to appease the sort of moderate conservative voters here. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Lots to watch for. Alvia Diaz, editorial page editor of the Arizona Republic, joining us to talk more about this latest column and what's happening in immigration. Alvia, thanks as always. No, thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. The World Trade Organization will be holding a ministerial conference in Abu Dhabi for much of this week. The group is nearly 30 years old and has more than 160 member states, which represents more than 98 percent of global trade. With me via Skype for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the coming days is the BBC's Jonathan Fruin in London. And Jonathan, what's on the agenda for this week's meeting and is any progress likely to be made towards the WTO's goals? Well, these meetings happen once every two years, and top of the agenda is a package of reforms to address the way the WTO adjudicates trade disputes. The top WTO court has been out of action for more than four years, with the US opposed to new judge appointments. Now, that means that billions of dollars of trade disputes remain unresolved. There is a proposal on the table towards reform there, but it's thought that progress is unlikely ahead of November's US presidential election. Then there are ongoing talks around fishing subsidies. Environmentalists argue that knocking away billions of dollars in fishing 
fishing subsidies is the most important thing that states can do to help reverse declining fish stocks around the world. There was a deal struck at the last ministerial meeting in Geneva in 2022, banning some subsidies, including for illegal fishing. But negotiators left thorny issues around other subsidies unresolved. Now, it's thought that China itself, the world's biggest fishing subsidizer, may seek to be given a carve out on fishing subsidies designed for developing members. And then there's a bid to extend the moratorium on applying duties to electronic transmissions. India is among the holdouts on that. The moratorium is due to expire this year. And if it's not extended, analysts say countries could introduce customs duties on things like film downloads. So there's plenty for the negotiators to get their teeth stuck into this week. Yeah, it sounds like it. All right, Jonathan, let's move now to Iran, where on Friday, voters go to the polls there for parliamentary elections. What can we expect to see there? Well, this is the first election in Iran since the death in custody of Masa Amini in 2022, which triggered nationwide protests across Iran. You'll remember that she was alleged to have not been wearing her hijab or headscarf in accordance with the rules and was being held by the country's morality police. Eyewitnesses reported that she was severely beaten, though the authorities claimed she died of a heart attack. So that's the backdrop. Meanwhile, large billboards and election posters have sprung up in Tehran and other cities announcing the start of campaigning last week, urging people to take part. More than 15,000 candidates have been approved by those in charge of the vetting process to compete for the legislature's 290 seats, according to the official IRNA news agency. Now, most of the candidates, particularly in small constituencies, are said to be doctors, engineers, civil servants and teachers, that sort of thing, who are not affiliated with any political group. But according to reformist politicians, only between 20 and 30 of the reformist candidates who submitted applications have been approved to run in the election. Iran's current parliament, elected four years ago, has been dominated by conservatives and ultra-conservatives after reformists and moderates were disqualified then. And there have been some controversial remarks about these elections made by former presidents of Iran. What have they been saying? Well, that's right. Last Monday, the former reformist president, Mohammed Khatami, said that Iran was, quote, very far from free, participatory and competitive elections. He pointed to growing popular discontent among Iranians. The country's been reeling under challenging U.S. sanctions since the U.S. US withdrew back in 2018 under Donald Trump from the landmark Iran nuclear deal. Inflation runs at around 50%, while the Iranian currency has fallen sharply against the dollar. Meanwhile, former moderate President Hassan Rouhani has called on the people to vote to protest against the ruling minority. He recently announced that he was barred from seeking re-election to the so-called Assembly of Experts after more than two decades of membership of that body, which is responsible for electing and supervising Iran's supreme leader, who, of course, has the final say in all matters regarding Iran. Meanwhile, the Reform Front, which is a key coalition of reformist parties, has said that it will not take part in what it called meaningless, non-competitive and ineffective elections. Some opposition figures in Iran and members of the country's diaspora have even called for a total boycott of the polls. So it will be interesting to see what the turnout for this election actually is. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Jonathan, finally this week, the formal campaign period for Mexico's presidential election gets underway this weekend. Who is in the running? Well, the election itself is scheduled for June this year, and the incumbent president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, is constitutionally barred from seeking a second term. So that means that barring something fairly extraordinary, Mexico is set to have its first female president. There are actually three candidates, one of whom is male, but he's polling at a fraction of the other two contenders. The first of those is 
Claudia Scheinbaum, a former Mexico City mayor who is considered the front runner, currently polling at around 64%. She's a representative of the current president's Morena party. She's a climate scientist turned politician, aged 61, and is widely believed to have been the preferred choice of Andres Manuel López Obrador. She presents herself as a continuity candidate and looks likely to benefit from Mr López Obrador's enduring popularity. But analysts say that her victory isn't guaranteed. Her main rival is also 61 years old, the computer engineer and businesswoman Sojitul Galvez, who's backed by a three-party coalition, including the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, which dominated Mexico's politics until around the year 2000. Growing up poor as a child, she helped her family sell street food. Ms. Galvez has previously said that her father, an indigenous Otomi schoolteacher, was an abusive alcoholic. She wears indigenous clothing, uses colloquial language, and is often seen cycling around Mexico City. She's said to have a quick wit and down-to-earth demeanour, and she's currently polling at around 31%. And then completing the electoral lineup is Jorge Alvarez Menes of Mexico's Small Citizens Movement Party. He's polling at just around 5% currently and was the campaign manager for Samuel Garcia, who had been the candidate for Mr. Menes's party until last December. And Jonathan, the campaign will be formally getting underway against the backdrop of public protests. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Thousands of Mexicans took to the streets of the capital last week to demand a free vote and defense of democracy as they accused the government of interfering in the election campaign, even before it's officially begun. Dressed in white and pink, opponents marched on the central square that houses the seat of government. Organizers of the protest accused the government of using state resources to shift the vote in favor of Claudia Scheinbaum. Andres Manuel López Obrador has slammed the call to protest as a, quote, demonstration to defend corruption. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that election campaign plays out in Mexico over the course of the next few months. Yeah, that should be interesting indeed. All right. That is the BBC's Jonathan Fruin in London. Jonathan, good as always to talk to you. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, too. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. And now it is time for the next edition of our series, Made in Arizona. I could take risk with embroidery in a way that I couldn't take risks in other areas of art. A lot of my paintings, gravity doesn't matter a whole lot. Dance wasn't something that is necessarily seen in galleries, you know. And I just remember being like, this is the key. This is how dance gets out there. I try to tug at people's heartstrings. I try to do something disturbing. I escaped real life and I went back in time. When you've lived in a place for a long time, it can be easy to miss the vibrancy of it. But our next guest looks at Phoenix with fresh eyes and draws it. Artist Jacob Newman grew up in the Midwest, went to college in Colorado, where he was a cartoonist for the student newspaper. And when his family relocated to Phoenix, he followed. And when he arrived here last year, he started drawing scenes and storefronts in the neighborhood near where he works, around Perry Park in East Phoenix. I spoke with him more about it and his reaction to Phoenix when he first got here not too long ago. I was grateful to be in a place with so much personality. I I mean, Phoenix is so colorful and it has such a singular American identity. Hmm. I mean, this is, in my opinion, really the only of its kind, both in sort of the character of the music and the food and the culture, the architectural history. And so 
um, I, I I was just sort of so thrilled about it. That's so interesting because so many people will rag on Phoenix and say it doesn't have any culture or architectural identity <laughs> or any of those things, right? Like it's interesting as an outsider, you really see those things. Do you think you look at it differently? Um, I think that Phoenix has sort of an exceptional blend of a lot of different influences, groups and people who have come here for many different reasons and created a very unlikely identity that is what we have today. I mean, you Mm. have like, you know, retirees and the sort of original gateway to the rest of the world. This was a sort of frontier town. And, you know, now you have many different first generation populations coming from around the world. And it's really very special to see all of them interacting, but standing on the ground of the history that was here. So like, that's what I love observing in my businesses is that you have like a place that has meant many different things to many people over time. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about your businesses, as you call them. Like you, it, you, you look at them very dearly and you draw them in this very particular way. First, talk about how this kind of project began. What was the first maybe business you remember that you started drawing in this way? Sure. So I work on 32nd and Windsor and uh, it just puts me right in the middle of this area that I draw. And just I was driving down East Thomas Road every day. And honestly, I was just floored by what I was seeing. I mean, the the color of the businesses, the color of the people, the vibrance that, you know, I moved here in June, the heat, the mm-hmm. intensity, just all of it was coming together. And um, it just felt like the only thing I could do was draw it. That was the only way I could process how amazed I was by it. Mm. Um, And the first business that I drew was Nickel City Baby. Um, (laughs) Are are you familiar? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, what you do is like you're picking these places that are not like the popular place, the hip place, the cool place. Like it's it's places that are sort of like, you know, strip mall places or mom and pop shops, like sort of the places most people would probably drive by and not notice at all. Sure. You know, I think why it feels so personal to me is um, my own family and coming to the United States generations ago, you know, found their way and survived by opening small businesses. They had at one time an electronics store, a liquor store, um, kosher butcher, and this was how they were able to pay to help their children go to college and to sort of build their way into the American dream. And Mm. so really when I see these businesses, I see that semblance of my own story. That's really cool. Okay. So you mentioned the first business that you drew there. Talk about some of the others, some of the other highlights, I guess, from your career drawing these things in Phoenix. Sure. Um, I mean, my goal in earnest at first was to just drive up eastbound on Thomas Road and draw as many of the businesses as I could. (laughs) You know, I try to only draw things that can only be found here. Um, There are times where that can mean different things. Like once I was driving to work and it was, you know, one of these record-breaking days of heat. It was nine in the morning, chaos, East Thomas Road, and there was just a young guy playing an acoustic guitar sitting at the bus stop in front of (laughs) Carl's Jr. Um, And, you know, I, I drew that because that 
even though Carl's Jr. can be found almost anywhere, it's representative of something that I felt you could only see here. Yeah, that's so cool. So talk about the style that you draw. And you mentioned that you used to draw a comic. Like, you understand that side of things, but you're also drawing things pretty accurately. Like, they might be colored a little differently than they are in real life and a little bit more bright and vibrant, but, like, it's pretty true to form. How do you go about this style-wise? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, I do want to be clear. These are very much so multimedia illustrations. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sort of using about, let's say, 10 reference images, um, drawing it out, maybe at times doing some trace work Mm -hmm. on the inner details. But then I'm using like the eyedropper tool, this kind of thing to sample the original colors and reconstruct it like piece by piece, brick by brick to be true to form. Um, I don't always use true colors. I mean, on my Julio Bertos one, almost the entire illustration is red. Yeah. Um, but in those cases, what I'm trying to do is um, show something that's still true to form, if not just a bit abstract. So mm-hmm. this was one of the hottest days of the year when I uh, drew this picture. And I just this building is fiery red painted in real life. And I wanted to just depict how hot it felt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned the Julio Bertos one. There are a few sort of iconic things that have sort of, it sounds like, accidentally ended up in your collection of Phoenix drawings. You were not trying to draw icons. Talk about a few of those. Absolutely. It's things that mean a lot to me. It's a very personal thing for me to draw these places. And Anytime I've drawn something that has had a strong reaction, it really has been pretty unintentional. Mm. Um, I mean, I had the privilege of vending at uh, Phoenix Zine Fest, sponsored by Wasted Ink here in Phoenix. And I, you know, brought, let's say, 20 copies of the Julio Bertos print, just evenly spread with every other print I have. And, you know, within the first hour of this event, they were all gone. And I, Time after time, people come to the table and have a reaction, and I didn't really understand that it's a phenomenon here. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, and I do enjoy when that happens, but I'd say that the reactions that stick with me the most by a long shot are the ones from the people who stand in the businesses every day. Yeah. So you do this, like you will draw a business, not tell them you're doing it, but (laughs) you will draw a business. And then when the drawing is done, you will take it to them, right? And then and try to present it to them to give it to them. What do you say? (laughs) Yeah, I, um, you know, I just I have these um, like poster frames, and I just uh, frame it and sign it and really just walk in and say, it's sort of a strange thing to to try to explain to someone in like <laughs> 60 seconds like I drew your I drew your storefront and this is a copy and I don't want any money it's just free I if don't you want, want any it. money yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's the big thing is yeah. like I'm not I'm not asking for anything I just want to share this with you uh-huh. um and you know I mean in this neighborhood there is a, the language barrier can be a challenge to explain that mm-hmm. sometimes but oftentimes if there is like someone who predominantly speaks Spanish they'll find you know, oh, my my kid can help or Google Translate or something. Yeah. um, Yeah, end up being able to communicate. Yeah. So tell us about some of those moments that have really touched you that have been really special when you give these drawings away. Yeah. I mean, you know, that first one I described, Nickel City, um, the owner is just one of the kindest ladies I've ever met. And um, I'd connected with her online just to sort of explain and she was incredibly receptive and gracious and then you know i brought it in and this was after a day of work and after she's been in there you know because it's a business place it's been open all day too and 
I gave it to her and she held it and she really just looked at it and you could see someone seeing the cycle of their own story hmm. in something um, in a short span of time. And that, that really stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about um, the what this means to the city part of this, right? Like you looked at Phoenix in a really interesting way you described for us there. But it sounds like when you're drawing these and and giving them to these businesses, what you're really seeking is community. Sure. And I think that I want to send a clear message to people who don't spend every day in this area around Perry Park, because um, if you look up Perry Park and you read stories that are written about it, there's there's a lot of adversity that this community faces. There, there are a lot of very challenging sort of macro level forces that they're battling. But mm-hmm. I'm just blown away by the creativity, the kindness, the resilience and the optimism that I see in this community every day. And I really want to show just how in, in spite of these things, this community is thriving. Okay. Jacob Newman, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.